As you know, we are on our last message on uh, going through the book of Acts and looking at the person of the Holy Spirit. And I am so excited about this message. And um, I don't think I've ever preached on this particular chapter of, of Acts, and it's just got me excited. And as we finish this series, we've been talking about how the Holy Spirit literally transformed the early church to do absolutely incredible things around them and to basically change their culture around them uh, into the into the character of, of Jesus Christ in this small group of 120 people who were baptized in the Holy Spirit. The, this Holy Spirit flowed out into the streets and the countrysides and the countries around them with the wonderful gospel message of Jesus Christ that Jesus came, He died, He rose again, and He's got the answers to our problems. And guess what? That same Jesus is still changing lives today. That same message is changing lives today. That same message is why you're here today. That same message is why I'm standing before you today is because Jesus changed my life. He's not just a historical figure. He's alive today. And that message is transformational. And that's what should make the church so powerful. And here's what I want to do today. I want to finish this whole message by just explaining to you and hopefully for us to understand, do we know what we believe? Do, has it really transformed our lives where it affects those that live around us? Can we actually stand in the face of our culture and say to our culture that, is, that many times is very anti-God, that's very anti-gospel message, that's very anti-Christ, and stand in our culture and say, this is why I believe that I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Can we do that? And I believe as followers of Jesus Christ, it is mandatory, it is vital that we know why we believe that Jesus is the only way. Now, many of you sitting here and, and you, you came to Christ and you were going through a difficult time in your life and you just believed. You were like, man, yeah, I, I just believe. Some of you were just raised in the church and you were... You were taught how to pray. You had the examples of your parents before you on what it meant to serve Jesus Christ. And, and you just came into the faith just ready to go. Some of you cut your teeth on the pews of the church. And you, 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 you know, your pillow was the hymn book. You, you knew about Jesus at an early age. Praise God that some of you went through extreme addictions in your lives. And you turned to Christ and God. And, and God divinely uh, just healed you and helped you to overcome those addictions and transformed you and brought deliverance in your life. That may be you here today, um, but you're here because of that life transformation that Christ gives. Here's, here's the thing I want to talk about today. Do we know what we believe and can we articulate that to a world that is so anti-Christ, an anti-gospel message? Can we articulate that in our world? And what we're going to see today and Acts 17 is how Paul stands before a bunch of worldly philosophers and articulates the gospel message in front of a, in front of a very hostile crowd that looked down to him. And it's amazing how Paul stood up for what he believed when he was even being ridiculed. And Paul knew what he believed and he was willing to stand in the face of opposition and ridicule for his Savior Jesus Christ. 
And if we're followers of Jesus Christ, we need to know why we believe what we believe. And we need to show people, listen, this is why we believe what we believe. And hopefully whittle away their arguments for what they believe. And hopefully point them to the cross of Jesus Christ and what Jesus came to do. So I want to dig into this. And what I want to look at this morning is, is, can we defend our faith against any world view. And I believe one of the biggest problems in the church today is when a high school student, a Christian who graduates from high school and and goes off to a secular college, his Christian worldview will be challenged right away. If, if, you're, if, you're, if you're in high school today, you will be challenged for your Christian worldview just by certain classes you will take. If you're an adult here today, you will be challenged somehow, some way by a family member or a co-worker, and they're going to challenge your Christian worldview. We are constantly, as believers, being challenged for why we believe and what we believe and how we believe this practically each and every day in our lives. And we need to know what we believe and how we believe it and why it's important to us. Now, here's the thing about as believers being challenged in their Christian worldview. Not only are we challenged, but many times mocked and even ridiculed for what we believe. I can remember the first time I was challenged with my Christian worldview was when I was a either a freshman or a sophomore in high school. I can't remember, but I was a brand new Christian just saved, gave my my life to Jesus Christ, bowed my knee to him, humbled myself. Jesus saved me from my sins, and I was a follower of Jesus, brand new. I was wet behind the ears. The only scripture I memorized was John 3, 3, that a man must be born again. That was it in in my Christian arsenal to talk to people about Jesus. I would just say, hey, are you born again? That's what Jesus, I, you know, I, that's all I had. That was it in my arsenal. That's all, it's the only bullet. I, I was Barney Fife. I had one bullet in my gun, and that was John 3, 3, okay? So now I sit in an English class, and, and I was challenged by my English teacher who played this song in our English class during, you know, poetry or whatever the topic was during that quarter. And she played a song by John Lennon called Imagine. Now, we all know that song and hear the words of that song. And it challenged me because as I, as I listened to her play the record, it completely, this song completely flew in the face of my Christian worldview. And hear the words if you don't know it. John Lennon wrote this. It says, imagine there's no heaven. Right away, I was like, what? You know, my, so my ears perked up. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people Living for today, imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You, you may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you will join us and the world will be as one. John Lennon was preaching a message there. Was it the gospel message? No. Was it an anti-Christian worldview message? You better believe it. And when our English teacher played that, she thought it was so wonderful and it challenged 
what I believed. And I stood up and I raised my hand in that class. I was like this, raising my hand. She goes, how many like that song? What do you think about that song? So I raised my hand and I said, this is what I think about that song. No, I didn't say that. I just said, I said, I don't believe what he says. I don't believe it. And I began, and she, well, she was just like uh, shocked. And I think I got an F in that court. No, I, I, she just looked at me. She goes, she was, she, she was really? You know, and I said, this is why. And, and I began to share John 3.3. 3. You know, that's all I had. And, and I, I, I don't know if I explained myself well there, but I challenged her and she was so shocked. And, and here is the shocking thing in my English class was that there wasn't another student in that whole class that said anything different. There was no one else that stood up and said, you know, I don't agree with it. Everybody else either didn't say something or said, oh, that's really neat if there's no more war, if there's no heaven, if there's no religion. See, what the song is saying is everything would be better if there was no faith, no belief system. Basically, what he's saying is everything would be better if we did not believe in God. See, wouldn't it be wonderful if there's nothing that divided us? See, this is a great premise, but not in reality. And what we're going to see today in Acts 17 is Paul was faced with this very same thing as he was challenged in his belief as he was in Athens on a second missionary journey. He came against a worldview of the Athenians and he was able to converse with them in this open forum. Paul was able to speak to them from this place in Athens called the Hill of Ares, which is the Greek god of war. And then as the Roman culture took over, the Romans took over, they called it Mars Hill, or the, this would be the Roman god of war. And he comes to this hill, and, and there's all these people debating about their different worldviews, their different philosophical views. And here Paul creeps in and begins to share with all these philosophers, all these great so-called educated men, and begins to poke holes in their world view. And Paul begins to share and shares the gospel message with them. So let's read this, Acts 17. And we're going to look at specifically at verses 16 through 27. And let's see exactly what happened to Paul on a second missionary journey as he gives his worldview Christian worldview to a world that's very hostile to this gospel message. Acts 17, verses 16 through 27, and let's read it together. It says, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw a city full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and, and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Do you got that? I just want to make sure we understood that. Okay, that's what he was preaching, okay? I know we hear a lot of other things that preachers preach today, but that's what he was preaching. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. 
So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I, I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though, need, or as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He is made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each one of us. And then what Paul will begin to do is he'll begin to go on and preach about repentance and the resurrection. And as they begin to listen, Paul even gains some converts through this speech. So let me tell you what Paul was up against here. Notice the philosophies that Paul was coming against. Two of the most popular philosophies of the time were Stoicism and Epicureanism. Let me explain what these two philosophies were because they were very prevalent during Paul's time. Stoicism is a member of school of philosophy founded by Zeno about 300 BC. And what this philosophy taught was, it was holding that the wise man should be free from passion, unmoved by joy or grief, and submissive to natural law. You accept whatever the universe gives you. Whatever will be, will be. Okay, sirrah, sirrah. Okay, so whatever will be, will be. And we kind of get this phase from the Stoics. They were very stoic, meaning without feeling, if you've ever heard that phrase before. They were very stoic without feeling. The Epicureanisms, the Epicurus, they would teach this. It was an ancient Greek philosophical system taught by Epicurus about 300 B.C. And the emphasis of this was a little bit different. This goal was to be happy and content in the here and now. They rejected both superstitious fears of the gods and the notion of an afterlife. So you see how this completely when Paul began to speak, these two world views, Paul was speaking right into the face of them, completely opposite of what the Christian worldview is. The phrase that we get, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, can be traced to this philosophical idea. This is what Paul was up against. And what they called Paul as he began to speak in the city is they, be, they began to call him a, a babbler. And this literally means one who picks up seeds. It's derived from the Greek word lego, meaning to pick up. If you guys like to play with lego, I still like to play with legos. My kids love to play with legos, or they did. And legos means to pick up. That's the Greek word. And basically, it was not a flattering term that they were saying to Paul. Basically, what they were saying to Paul was, you pick up ideas like a chicken pecks at seeds, and then spouts out words without knowing what you're talking about. Have you ever had someone say that to you and you began to witness to them? You don't know what you're talking about. Who do you think you are? You have no idea. Well, that's what basically what they were saying about Paul. But it, this intrigued them 
to the point to where they wanted to bring him to the Areopagus. And this is where, uh, this was a very famous place on the hill of Ayers or, or Mars Hill where councils would meet and make decisions. These were the wisest, supposedly, of the wise men that would meet in this council area. And so they brought Paul to this place to speak to them about this new idea. Well, why don't you bring this new idea so we can talk about it and debate about it. And so what we see here is the early church was consistently challenged for their faith. And if they did not have a strong foundation, they could have easily folded under the pressure of other world systems. So if we are going to stand for our faith in our day and age, in our world, just like Paul's, no different from Paul, we need to know ourselves and we need to teach our children. We need to challenge them on what it means to have a Christian worldview. So what do I mean by that? What does it mean to have a Christian worldview? Basically, the definition is this. A Christian worldview is the way we look at the world. It's how we make decisions. It's the big picture of all our beliefs about how the world works and operates. Everyone looks at the world in a certain way and the way they perceive it. I don't care if you're not religious at all. I don't care if that person's not a Christian. Everyone has a worldview and the way they perceive the world. Let me give you an example. You can have a body of water. And a biologist would would look at that body of water and want to study it and study all the living things, organisms that are in the water. An artist would look at that same body of water and would want to paint the water. It's a beautiful thing. A photographer would want to take photographs at daybreak or sunset of of that water. For me... The first thing I would think about when I would look at that body of water, I could care less about taking pictures of it. I could care less about painting that water. The only thing I care about is what kind of fish are in that water, okay? That's all I care about as a fisherman. And so it's interesting. When we're driving and I see a stream, you know, my wife may say, oh, isn't that a pretty stream? The first thing I'm thinking, especially my son Wesley and I, we're thinking, what kind of fish are in that stream? Do you think there's trout in that stream? Man, we need to always carry our fishing poles in our car just in case we need to stop and fish that body of water. Everyone looks at the world in a certain way. Every situation, whether you like it or not, is influenced in how we look at the world. Whether you're a Christian or not, we deal with the same three basic questions And and we try to answer them the best way that we can. And here are the three basic questions of life. Are you ready? Here they are. And, and, And every person has to deal with them, whether you're a Christian or not. The three questions are, where did we come from? And why are we here? And why do we exist? The second question is, what's wrong with the world? Why is the world messed up? And and in all fairness to John Lennon, he tried to give his worldview on how to fix the world. In all fairness to John Lennon, that's what he tried to do through his song, Imagine. He tried to fix the world's problems by taking God and everything out. And wouldn't that be wonderful if we had everything in common? That was his worldview. Completely wrong, but that was his worldview and, 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 and good for him, okay? But that was his worldview. That was his religion. Whether he believed in no religion or not, that was his religion. That was his 
belief system. Do you, are, you, are you with me this morning? I know this is early. You're like, why did I come to church today? Third, I should have came to the 11 because this is just getting too deep and I'm totally confused. Okay, so second thing is, what is wrong with the world? And the third thing is, how do we fix it? John Lennon was trying to fix it by saying, wouldn't it be great if there's no heaven, no hell, no religion, no God? We all just join hands, sing Kumbaya, and drink Coca-Cola. That's what he was hoping would happen. It's not working. So the prevalent worldview, which is taught in our school systems and in our universities, is this, naturalism. That's the prevalent worldview. Everything can be explained by a natural order. No God, no creator, no intelligent design, and a popular advocate of this worldview that many people are following and reading books from is Richard Dawkins, who wrote a book called The God Delusion, lives in England. Not Richard Dawson, who kissed everybody on Family Feud, okay? So before you say, boy, I didn't know Richard Dawson would, wrote a book called The God Delusion. I thought he was a really nice guy that kissed everybody. Actually, I think he died not too long ago. So Richard Dawson, not the one that played on Hogan's Heroes, okay? This is Richard Dawkins, okay? And, uh, and there's another famous uh, physicist called Stephen Hawkins. Let me quote to you what they're saying, and, and, and this is a philosophy, this is a worldview that's prevalent in our teaching system. Stephen Hawkins, an English physicist, has said this, has said this we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star, but we can understand the universe that makes us something very special. Richard Dawkins, the atheist, the evolutionary biologist, has said this, we admit that we are like apes, but we seldom realize that we are apes. Now, if you come to my house, I agree with that sometimes, okay? He says this also, if you are an atheist, you know you believe this is the only life you're going to get. It's a precious life. It's a beautiful life. It's something we would live to the full to the end of our days. Where if you're religious and you believe in another life somehow, that means you don't live for this life to the full because you think you're going to get another one. That's an awful negative way to live a life. Being an atheist frees you up to live a life properly, happily, and fully. Here's the problem with that. The problem with naturalistic evolution is they cannot answer those three questions fully. You've got, let me just, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, which I'm totally stoked that you're here for this message. If you cannot answer those three questions, you've got problems, big time problems. We need to be able to answer those three questions. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you better know how to answer those three questions in our day and age. And Paul knew how to answer those three questions when he was at the Areopagus. So let, let's, let's, let me just tell you why this bothers me today, why I don't think many Christians understand how to answer these three questions. Here's the scary thing is that this naturalistic evolution, the problem with this and the reason why so many of our school systems and, and, and um, universities accept this uh, philosophy for the, for the world and for their worldview 
is that they want to keep God out of everything. If you can just keep God out of the equation, just say everything happened naturalistically, then we're going to be okay. But the problem is with that, they can't answer question number one. Where did we come from? In fact, the best answer that Richard Dawkins, not Richard Dawson, Richard Dawkins said about the origins of life is the best thing he could answer that is that the aliens seeded the earth. Isn't that special? So my question is, where do the aliens come from? Okay, they had to come from some, right? It's just they can't answer that first question. And here's the scary thing. I know I'm picking on, on, on Richard, I almost said Richard Dawson. I'm picking on Richard Dawkins, but here's the scary thing. Most Christians, those who say they follow Christ, don't understand their Christian worldview and have no idea how to defend themselves against other worldviews, specifically naturalistic evolution. I read this book called Unchristian, and it was a book that researched what this generation really thinks about Christianity, and they came up with some very shocking research. This is what they found. They found that just 3% of young adults, that is one out of every 22 young adults that made commitments to Jesus Christ had a Christian worldview, 3%. Only 3% understood what their Christian worldview was. Now, what about adults? Adults, only 9% understood what a Christian worldview is. Houston, we have a problem. We have a huge problem in the church. And these are just, the facts speak for themselves. <clears throat> the result is this. We are wide but not deep. And what this speaks about many Christians is, is our commitment is a superficial faith based on sloppy theology that we get from many very weak, weak books about God. We tend to shift towards the books that are very simplistic and not allowing us to grow deeper in our faith in Jesus Christ. Let me just, can I just I'm going to rebuke you right now as your pastor, okay? I'm just feeling the Holy Spirit saying, Pat, you just got to challenge your people. I'm going to challenge you here, okay? Listen, I'm not against, I know many of you have brought books to me and said, Pastor, read this book, read that book. Okay, blah, 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 okay. Let me just challenge you as your pastor. And I will tell you this, when you read a book that I think is not real deep theologically, I'm not going to tell you not to read it, but when there's a book that you're going to read, I'm going to challenge you to say, why don't you read a book like J.R. Packer, Knowing God? I'm going to balance you off a little bit. I'm going to challenge you. You may get mad at me when I say, I don't agree with this teaching. I'm going to be careful with you here about this book and what other books teach about heaven or about the Trinity or whatever it may be. I'm going to challenge you to grow deeper. And I'm going to say, why don't you read a book like Knowing God by J.R. Packer to grow your theology so that you have a firm foundation of what God teaches about heaven, what God teaches about the Trinity, so that you have a firm foundation that you may stand firm in what you believe. We've got to be careful here. If our commitment is superficial and not very deep in our theology, then we're not going to be able to stand up against the world and have a good world Christian worldview. Research speaks for itself. If we can't defend our faith, we are in trouble. Here's what the book Unchristian, here's, what they, here's the results they came up with with all their research. They said this, and this is shocking. They said this, how deep is the faith you convey to outsiders? What type of depth, depth are we asking our friends and neighbors to have? 
A get-saved approach ignores the fact that most people in America have made an emotional connection to Jesus before. Now they need much more than a one-dimensional understanding of him. More of the same lightweight exposure to Christianity where a decision for Christ is portrayed as simple and costless, we fail to produce lasting faith in young people. Are you hearing me, church? Listen, I don't offer small groups and Sunday school and Wednesday night teaching and Thursday morning Bible studies and Wednesday or Thursday Bible studies for ladies for ladies for my health. Okay? I do it for you because I love you as your pastor and I want you to grow deeper in your faith so that when you go out in the world and you work with a coworker, you can rightly defend what you believe. People, we've got to get to the point to where Christianity is just more than just coming on Sunday morning and feeling good and raising our hands and feeling the emotional, spiritual doodads. That's all wonderful and dandy. But we've got to know what we believe because what's happened is once we are challenged by our faith and we're not growing in our faith, it's easy to get sucked into these other world philosophies and fall away from what we believe. We've got to know what we believe. So the dilemma that we are in today is that is that we need to know what we believe. And the Christian worldview answers these questions. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to answer them for you. You've got them in your notes. And I want to challenge you today. So everything we need to solidify our world belief comes right out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So let's answer them. You've got your notes. Let's answer them. Question number one, the great philosophical question where did we come from we know that through the word of god that god created us in his what image and so the word of god says so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them and god blessed them and god said to them be fruitful multiply fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and have dominion over the fish. That doesn't happen a lot with me. I don't know where I missed that verse. God, give me dominion. I should pray that next time I go fishing. God, give me dominion over this fish so I can catch. I'm just having fun. Of the sea and over the birds and over the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so what we see here, even in Genesis 1-1, that God is the creator of heaven and earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When it means that God created us in his image, it means that he gave us authority and dominion to rule over the animals and to rule over the earth. Just as God rules over us, he gave us that ability to do these things. God himself did that for us. So we are created in his image. He is the creator of heaven and earth. So where do we come from? We came from God himself. Self. Now, here's the problem. The second question is, well, then what went wrong with the world? Why would God create us full knowing that, that we're going to make mistakes? Well, you have to understand that God did give us a free will. We're just not a bunch of robots. Wouldn't it be great if God just created us to all be perfect and do nothing? I mean, he gave you a free will. That's how much he loves you. He did give you a free will to choose. And so what happened with the world is this. We sinned against God and we rebelled against his plan. And so from the very 
beginning of time, God had a plan to reach his people. So what's wrong with the world? Well, what's wrong with the world is sin. Man sinned and rebelled against God. And we see this in many scriptures, one of them being Luke 19, for the reason why the Son of Man came was to seek and save that which was what? Lost. Why were we lost? Because we sinned. And we were distant from God. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death through sin, and so death spreads to who? All men, because all have sinned. So we all have sinned here. Romans 5.18 explains that further. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness through Christ leads to justification and life for all men. So what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and they rebelled against God? Adam literally represents all of mankind who would uh, descend from him. And because of our sin, we are objects of God's wrath and judgment. But there's good news. And, and that's why we see evil in the world. That's why we see people doing bad things. It's because of sin. Man began to follow their own heart, their own lustful desires, their own evil desires. But God and God alone is the only one who can save us. And from the very beginning, even in Genesis, God in Genesis 3.15 had a plan to save mankind and redeem us from the wages of sin. So God and God alone is the only one who can save us. And I love this prophecy in Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking of the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, speaking of Christ, who would be the offspring of the woman, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Meaning there would be a savior from, this, from the seed of the woman that would come that would rescue us from the bonds of slavery that sin caused us to go into. Verse 20, uh, Genesis 3.21, I love this. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, they realized they were naked and they sewed fig leaves and tried to cover their nakedness. Their sin exposed them. It made them ashamed. They hid in the garden away from God. There was guilt and condemnation associated with their sin, so they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. But verse 21, it says that the fig leaves weren't enough. And God did something for them. And it said, The Lord God made Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. What I love about these two verses is that both these verses point to Christ as a sacrifice for our sin. Christ literally became our sacrifice for sin. He became the payment for our rebellion. See, the fig leaves weren't enough. God actually, there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be blood shed and payment for our rebellion and for our sin. And fig leaves weren't enough because they covered themselves. God said, no, I'm going to provide for you the sacrifice because you can't cover your shame in your own strength. Only I can do that. And that's a foreshadow of what Jesus Christ did for you and I when he covered our sins. So with a clear understanding of Genesis 1 through 3, we will be able to defend our faith in a world who's trying to define it for us. We know why we're here. We know what the problem is with the world. And we know how to fix it. And Jesus came to fix the problem in this world through his perfect life. You see, the bottom line here, when we 
rightly understand Genesis 1 through 3, we understand that God is creator, not nature. We are not left up to happenstance. We are not a, a product of random actions, actions in nature. God designed the world literally in perfect fashion. We can see his handiwork all around us in the way God has created this world. I, I, I love this one uh, uh, very specific principle that works in our universe. Have you, ever, have you ever thought about this for a moment, that here we are, we exist in this world, we, we understand that, that, that this world is spinning, that there's stuff all around us, you got the universe, you got the sun, and how does everything work in perfect order? Well, the answer is, is this principle called anthropic principle. And basically what this principle is, is anthropic principle is a is the law of human existence. How do we exist? How can we breathe? How can we live on this earth? There are all these things that have to happen in perfect order for you to be sitting here right now listening to me speak. There has to be something. It just can't be happenstance or just chaos. Everything has to happen in perfect order. It is well known that our existence in this universe depends on numerous cosmological constants and parameters whose numerical values must fall within a narrow range of values. Even if a single variable were off, even slightly, you and I would not be here today. This is how awesome God, listen, this is how awesome God is in his creation. Let me give you a couple examples. The color of our sun. If the sun was much redder on one hand or bluer on the other, photosynthesis would be impeded. And photosynthesis is the natural biochemical process crucial to life on earth. The gravitational pull of Jupiter acts like a huge vacuum keeping meteoroids from bombarding the earth. The Earth's place in the solar system, if it were much further from the sun, our planet would freeze. If it were much closer, it would boil. This is just one of the numerous examples of how our privileged place in the solar system allows for life on Earth. Let me just give you one more because I know you guys are so excited about these. And you say, Pastor, give me more. Tell us more, Mr. Science. Okay, let me give you one more. The Earth's magnetic field. If it were much weaker, our planet would be devastated by cosmic radiation. If it, were, if it were much stronger, it would be devastated by severe electromagnetic storms. Do you see how perfect God is in his creation? How can, if you've got a watch on today, how can the watch say, oh, I made myself? If you look at the if you look at the preciseness of a, of a watch, you have to say, oh, there had to be a watchmaker that made that. The more we understand about our universe, the more we understand about molecular science, the more we understand how intricate everything is and how precise everything has to operate. Darwin did not have that understanding when he wrote his book. He didn't have molecular science understanding of how molecules work. He just kind of put these theories together and we've got 
neo-Darwinists today that are still trying to stand firm on these things that, that scientists have blown holes in because it just doesn't work. There is no fossil record that is the link between animals and humans. They have not found it. But we're still teaching it, aren't we? So many scientists today are turning to an intelligent design saying there has to be. Now many are not Christians and the reason why neo-Darwinists are so fearful of intelligent design theory is because guess what? If you begin to believe in intelligent design, you've got to take the next step over here saying, okay, if there's an intelligent design, then there must be a creator. If there's a creator, there must be a God. If there's a God, who has the answer for that? Well, we've got the answer for it in the Word of God because He tells us all over the place of how He created this world. And we see how perfect God is in His creation. In Genesis 2, we, we, we get our worldview about marriage, that God defined marriage between a man and a woman, that a husband shall leave his father and mother and, and the two shall become one flesh. There's our definition for marriage. There's our worldview of marriage. We have, our, we have our worldview of life. God created life. And so we see life as precious both to the born and the unborn. They are precious to God because He created them. We see the sanctity of marriage and life and this is the way we, we should shape the way we see marriage and the rights of the unborn. You see, the great problem is sin. And God is the only one who can redeem us. And in the first three chapters of Genesis, we see exactly what God did for us and how it should shape the way we look at everything. I love the end of, let me finish with this, because I love the end of chapter 17. I don't have it in your notes there, but just listen to me. After Paul gets done speaking to the men, he says this. He said, God overlooked people's arrogance about things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he's proved to everyone who this is by raising Jesus from the dead. And it's interesting, as he finishes up his speech and his preaching to these men, what's interesting here is you've got three types of people after hearing what he has said. And, 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 and what he says to them in, in verse 32, he says, when they heard Paul speaking about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. And that ended Paul's discussion with them. But what's incredible about this is that in the last verse of chapter 17, it says, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a member of the Areopagus, and a woman named Deramis, and others with them. So you got three groups of people. You got those that mocked him and didn't believe in the resurrection. You got some that were still interested in saying, hey, I'm not totally opposed to this. This is pretty interesting what you're telling us. And you got two individuals that the scripture mentions that say, we want to follow 
this Jesus and they became believers. Let me say this to you today. In your notes there, I've got probably some of the top books that I believe will help you. I'm not, I'm not here to say, oh, hey, um, you, you know, let's get down on everybody because they don't actually know what they believe. Okay, I'm here to challenge you to say, know what you believe. So that when someone comes to you and challenges your faith, you can say, listen, I know why we're here. I know that man sinned. And, and, and here's the answer in Christ. And, and let me give you some books to help you with this. Here's some, here's some great books, and I've got them for you. One, one of the books I love is When Skeptics Asked by Norm Geisler. Another wonderful book, in fact, our Thursday morning, morning men's group is going through this book, Unsilenced by James Bacardo. That's Jim Bacardo's son, wrote this really great book on witnessing. It's very simple. I asked Jim to bring some copies with him today. So if you want to get, he's got about 10 copies, but we can get more. Just see Jim in the narthex and, and, and he will get you some, some of those. It's a great, easy book to read on, on, you know, what if people ask you this question? Have you ever thought, so what if somebody asked me this question? You know, what if somebody asked me, why would a loving God send anyone to hell? I don't know how to answer that. You know how I would answer that? I would tell them, why would a loving God send anyone to heaven? That's how you answer them. And then they're like, oh, okay. And then what you can do is you get it. Hey, we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's perfection and glory. That's the bottom line. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. We've all fallen short of God's perfection. And Jesus is our only answer. Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's a great book by Josh McDowell. The Case for Christ. Many of you know Lee Strobel have read some of his books. I love anything by Ravi Zacharias. One of the great books he's written is called Jesus Among Other Gods. You can get Ravi Zacharias's podcasts and, and listen to them. These are some great, great books to help you and to challenge you in your walk with the Lord. Here's, here, here's, here's the bottom line. What, what bothers me is when you have kids that go through church and and they grow up going to church and then they get out into the world and they fall away from their faith why is there such a great percentage of young people that fall away from their faith here's the reason why we're not we're not answering the questions that they're asking are you hearing me we can get into our church thing and, you know, and, and, but we're not answering the questions that students are asking. They're asking about the existence of life. They, they want to know, is there, is there scientific evidence? Is, is there other evidences that prove that the Bible is true? Is, is there things that corroborate who Jesus is? And you know what the answer is? Yes, there is. Okay? And so we need to challenge them to know that you don't have to check your brains out at the door to be a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, the evidence for who Christ is is so overwhelming that it caused many men who were skeptics to become believers because the evidence for Christ and Him being Savior and the evidence for the Bible is so overwhelming, it's incredible. And these books speak about the evidence of these things. We need to know that. Now listen, apologetics is an arm of Christianity that's a defense for your faith and how you can defend your faith. Listen, apologetics will save no one. You can have all these anthropic principles and you could try to blow holes in this. And guess what? You can have a, 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 you know, a, a circular argument with somebody. That's not going to change them. I tell everyone that the, the, the hardest road to heaven is 18 inches between your brain and your heart, okay? Unless God gets someone's heart, it's, it, you can give them all the, 
you know, all the evidence and all the statistics, all that you want. But here's the thing. You need to know what you believe. And every time I'm challenged in my faith, when people begin to ask me questions, it helps me to keep me on my toes so that I know what I believe. Now, this person may not become a believer right there, but hopefully what I've done is challenged them and maybe whittled away a little bit at their worldview. Hopefully for my English teacher, I whittled away a little bit of her worldview and made them think a little bit more about, hmm, is that really the way? Hmm, is, if there really is. And here's my question to you as we pray. Here's my question to you. If Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, we've got some, we've, we've, we, better, we better know what we believe. Jesus is either it or not. So we better know what we believe because he never made a way for something else. Like C.S. Lewis said, he's either a complete liar, a complete lunatic on the same level as a poached egg, or he's Lord. He didn't give us any other option. So if that's the truth, then we need to know this Jesus. And if he says that he is the Son of God, then we're going to have a lot of answering to do at Judgment Day. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So what I challenge people at, the, at a conversation when they're like, well, I don't really believe in God. I, don't really believe. I, just, I just say this. What if it's true? What, what if Jesus is who he says he is? Why don't you just read the Bible? Have you ever read the Bible? No, no, no. Why don't you just read the Bible? Read the New Testament. Just see what they say about Jesus. Just, just study it for yourself. Let me give you a couple of books here to challenge your faith. Here's a good book on, you know, on, on who the person is and the evidence for Christ. Why don't you, because most of the time, nobody's doing that for them. They're not giving them anything else to read or to challenge their faith. Here, here's a great author, Ravi Zacharias. He wrote a great book called Jesus Among Other Gods. He's a philosopher, but he's a very smart man. And he's researches. He's from India. He was involved in, in Hinduism, and he understands Hinduism and these other world religions. Why don't you read this book? In fact, I'll pay you to read this book. How about that? I'll give you $20 if you read this book. Just challenge people in their faith. Listen, I'm not a scholar. I don't have all the answers, but there's a lot of smart followers of Jesus Christ who've written wonderful books on how to challenge people's worldviews. And here's just a couple of them that I gave you today. You read them. Allow God to challenge you in your faith so that when you come across them, when you just don't have the well, why don't you just come to church with me? How about that? No, engage. Engage our culture. Challenge them in what they believe. Not, don't get in arguments and just don't say, well, at the end of the argument, well, you're just going to hell, so I'll talk to you later, okay? So enjoy your life and all. Let's not, okay, that's just dumb, okay? Let's engage. Let's have, I love this, and I love when people engage in conversations and, and have talked about it because it challenges me, but it also challenges them. That's what you want to do. You just don't want to shut, never shut the door. Don't shut the door. Engage them. Let them know there are answers for the questions that they have. Amen? So let me pray for you. Lord, as we just bow our hearts before you today, I pray, I know this isn't a humdinger of a message, God. I know we're not going to be swinging from the chandeliers on this message, but God, this is an important message that we know what we believe. And we've got the answers for why we're here. We have the answers for what the problem of this world is. And Lord, most of all, we have the answer on how to fix it, and that's Jesus. 
And so, Lord, I pray today that you would challenge us in our faith to really know what we believe, God. Not only to know what we believe, but to challenge our children and maybe come up with questions and answers on on, on why this happens, why the Bible is the word of God, why is Jesus the only way. God, that we would know what we believe so that, God, we can be, be securely equipped to give man an answer for the reason that the hope we have within us. And we thank you for the evidence that is all around us that points to a God of this creation. Not only a God that created the heavens, but a God that wants to know us personally, that loves us individually, that can save us from all the crud that sin has brought into our lives. God, we can know all about you and have all the facts straight, but the bottom line is, Jesus, you came for people. You came to save us from our sins and give us a brand new life and restore us so that we can have a right relationship with God, the Creator. God, you've given us everything we need to know you personally. And we can do that through a relationship with your son, Jesus. So I pray for every heart here today that they would know Jesus. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will no wise cast out. Come to me, all you are heavy laden and burdensome and just got a bunch of condemnation and guilt on your back. Come to me and I will give you rest. I'll give you peace that you've been looking for. I'll change your life and put you on a new course. I'll give you a hope that you've never had before. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the new relationship and the new life, the new beginning that we can have with Christ Jesus. And I pray that for everyone here, whether, whether people here, everyone here is a follower or if there's some here today that aren't, I pray, God, that we would just seek you and know that we know that we know that we know that Jesus is alive. So we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you for what you do for us each and every day. Lord, help us to be infectious in, in our culture, not just to be Christians in the four walls of this church. Help us to get out of these four walls and engage our culture, Lord. I pray for our students, Lord, when they sit in biology class. And the teacher says that we through the process of evolution were created and, and Lord, they could stand up and say, you know what, I don't believe that and this is, this is my faith and this is what I believe. Even though they got to take the class and understand that theory, they can understand why they're here. And maybe there's another student in the class that is interested in what that Christian has to say. I pray for our college students, Lord, as they're in our secular universities, Lord, that they would know what they believe, Lord, that when they're challenged with their Christian worldview, that they could stand up and they could say with clarity what they believe, just as Paul did on Mars Hill. 
Because, Lord, there's a, there's a Dionysus in that class. There's a person in that class that's looking for the truth. And, Lord, we have the truth that you've given us. So, Lord, help us not to be fearful in our belief in you, but to know what we believe, God. We thank you that you've given us everything possible we need to serve you. We just thank you for these things. In Jesus' mighty name. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's just sing to the Lord as we close in song today. And let's just sing. thank the Lord for Jesus. Amen? And knowing him today. So let's just sing the Son to the Lord as we close today. God bless you.
satisfied. God bless you today as you go in his grace and his mercy. May God just be with you. And I pray for every marriage here today, God, every, every individual, Lord, that you would guide us and protect us. And just thank you that we can know you and that we can turn to the word of God for all our answers. Every problem, Lord, every need can be solved through your word, Lord. And we thank you for that today. That's our trust today. And we just pray for your blessings upon our lives as we go in your grace now. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Listen, if anyone needs prayer, our prayer partners will be up front, and we'd love to pray with any need you're going through today. Otherwise, go in God's grace. God bless you. Amen.